I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block, Policy, Perspectives, and Players. The European Parliament declared an environment and climate emergency this week. Canada passed a similar resolution last June. And though climate change emerged as one of the top issues in the recent federal election, a new report by the Ecofiscal Commission says the government needs to increase the carbon tax if we are to meet our 2030 Paris targets. And what kind of policies should be realistic in tackling the changing climate while also focusing on a prospering economy. Joining me now is Stuart Elegie, Executive Director of the Smart Prosperity Institute and a member of Canada's Ecofiscal Commission. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Uh, you released uh, a pretty big report here. It's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of discussion about what's going on. Tell me about what the big three solutions are you see in terms of moving forward and being able to meet Canada's 2030 Paris targets. So the good news is we're finally making progress. After 25 years since we first signed the climate treaty, talking about taking action on climate change, in the last four years, we've seen more action than the previous two decades combined. So the, that's, the good news is we're actually finally starting to move in the right direction. The challenging news is we've got to go further. Um, so even our existing policies and plans, the commitments that have been made, will get us about two-thirds of the way towards meeting our Paris target. But there's 79 million tons, and basically about a third of our target we still have to figure out how to meet. So this report is about how do you do that? How do you close that gap? How do we meet our Paris target? And do it in a way that also positions us for a strong economy in a changing world. Um, we've looked at three basic options. One is you could do it through carbon pricing. Two is you could do it through regulation. And three, you could use it through, do it through subsidies. And we've compared them. Um, and the message is that if you want to achieve the reductions at the lowest cost to the economy, carbon pricing is the most important policy. It's not the only policy we should use, but it should be the foundation of our policy mix. And then building other things like building codes or vehicle efficiency standards around it. If you don't use pricing, if you use you know, traditional heavy-handed regulation, um, it actually costs more in almost all cases. And that's the, the really important message of this is that carbon pricing, the costs are apparent. People see them. Whereas things like you know, telling you what kind of heater you have to use in your home or what kind of car you have to buy um, may not seem as intrusive, but it actually costs a lot more than pricing, which leaves you the choice of how you want to respond, how you want to reduce emissions. So that's the main message. We, we need to do more to meet our target. We're making progress. And of all the options, pricing is the lowest cost way to reduce emissions and should be the foundation of our policies, but not the only one. Now you talk about it being the lowest cost, and of course the criticism we always hear is that it increases the cost of gas. You look around Ontario and you see the stickers that Doug Ford's government But they is, keep falling off so you can't really pumps. see them, right? But yeah. <laughs> so when you look at that cost, explain to me why is it that the cost of gasoline rises when you have that carbon tax? I mean, obviously you're, you're taxing the product itself, but you know, how does that work that that is the most cost-effective way of dealing with it if it's the average consumer who's saying, well, wait a minute, I'm paying more here? No, it's a really good question. So two things. One is pollution really has a cost. 
right? When we burn, whether it's coal for electricity or gas for cars, that's not free. It has a real cost on health. Um, thousands of people die each year because of the air pollution from burning coal and gas. And the carbon emissions have real costs too, right? They've led to um, big impacts on BC's forest industry, permafrost in the north slumping, fires and floods. Like All those things have real costs on our lives. And the longer climate change continues, the more those costs are going to be. If you lived in Ottawa this year, you have a sense from the flooding what the costs of climate change are, or lived in northern Alberta and saw the fires. So doing nothing has a real cost. Um, in some ways, what a carbon price does is it simply reflects that real cost. It says this isn't actually free. Um, you know, having a car that burns a lot of gas or a house that uses a lot of, of oil to heat it actually has a real cost that's passed on to the rest of society. Let's, let's reflect that cost. By reflecting that cost, you change behavior. And really, it's the first thing you learn in Economics 101 is you know, people use less of things that cost more. If that weren't true, then all of economics would be wrong. Right? When something costs more, we use less of it. So by putting a price on carbon, there's an incentive to use lower carbon alternatives. There's an incentive to buy more fuel-efficient vehicles, use transit a little bit more, uh, insulate your home more, or in the long run, when you're ready to buy a new house, Try and buy an energy-efficient, well-insulated house because you'll save a lot of money by doing it. The benefit of the way the, the government has designed the current carbon pricing system is they've taken all the revenues from that price and actually giving them back to people in a lump sum payment. People say, well, then why does it change my incentives? Well, you pay the carbon price regardless of how much you get back, um, and you get the rebate. So the more you can reduce your carbon footprint, the more money you keep in your pocket. So the rebate goes up. If you use less gas, you get a bigger benefit. Everyone gets the rebate. same rebate. So you know, by 2030, on the current plan, um, based on our, on our numbers, every person in Ontario, Quebec, will be getting about $800 a year in a rebate check. In Alberta, you'd get about 2000 because it's a more carbon-intensive economy. Everyone's going to get that. And so the people that lower their carbon footprint the most are going to come out ahead. Pocket right? Money, yeah. yeah, so it's actually a really good system. You see the price at the pumps, but you also get the rebate check back. So in the end, most people will actually end up with more money in their pocket through this system. We're paying more for pollution, but you're getting a lump sum tax rebate. And most people will come out ahead, and the people that reduce their carbon footprint the most will come out ahead the most. The reason that pricing is the lowest cost system is that the alternative is a regulation. So let's imagine you want to have people living in more energy efficient homes. One way to do it is to pass a regulation saying everyone must use a certain type of high efficiency heat pump. You've got to buy one within a year. That will reduce emissions a lot, but for a lot of people it will cost them a lot of money. The alternative is we'll put a price on carbon. Uh, and people will say, I've got a bunch of choices now for how I'm going to reduce my footprint. I could buy a smart meter that turns the heat down during the day when I'm not there. That'll reduce my carbon footprint. I could insulate my basement where I'm losing a lot or caulk along my doors. I could do that. That might end up getting you every bit as much reduction as that mandatory heat pump, but cost you a fraction of the cost. So the beauty of a price is it's a market incentive, and it lets every one of us look across all the range of things we could do and decide for ourselves how we want to reduce emissions, instead of government saying, you must do it this way. And that's kind of the irony of our current system, is that the right-of-center parties are proposing heavy-handed government regulation, and the center-left parties That's are, the big emitter model, when we talk about that kind of regulation, or is that separate? Well, it's partly the big emitter model, but it's also you know, saying we're going to do this through regulations. 
Um, and regulations really mean telling people what to do with their buildings, their cars, and telling industry what to do as well, right? Telling anyone who emits businesses or industry, this is what you must do. Whereas putting a price on emissions gives you flexibility about what to do. And for businesses, it, it also drives innovation, which is really what we want. Ultimately, we're going to solve our climate challenge um, through innovation for the most part. In 20 years, or 20 or 30, you can debate it, we're going to live in a low-carbon economy. We're still going to flip the switch and electricity is going to come on, but it's going to come from clean sources. You're still going to get in a vehicle and move around. It might be a shared vehicle, it might be autonomous, but it's going to have a different, it's going to have a battery under the hood, not a gas engine. You're still going to live in a home or a building, but it's going to have lots of gadgets and be really well uh, insulated and efficient. So on the surface, our society won't look that different. Under the hood, the energy system will have changed completely and our lives won't, you know, will still be the same. So what we're trying to do is drive that transition in our energy system. And pricing is the most cost-effective way to drive that innovation because it gives an economic reward to a business that can come up with low-cost ways. The aluminum industry in Canada is a great example. One of the most energy-intensive, carbon-intensive sectors. For years, they've been working on a way to change the way they make it, to take carbon out of it. There's now a pilot plant that's being built in Canada, the only place in the world that will produce carbon-free aluminum. If it's successful, and it looks like it will be, we will be the place in the world that will have the technology, the skills, uh, the intellectual property for what's probably going to be the next generation of carbon-free aluminum manufacturing. Same is going to happen for cement, petrochemicals, all these other sectors. That's the kind of innovation we want. And pricing uh, is, is a big part of getting there. So then the question I have for you is the question we've asked a lot of politicians, and we haven't gotten a great answer from them. Let's see if we can get one from someone <laughs> who studies this is the academic side of it. What do you do in a country like Canada where you, you have Alberta, where so much of the economy is dependent on oil and gas, and there's so many jobs, and these politicians come in and talk about we need to transition people, but they don't really lay out any kind of a plan. And, and you hear people say, what about the fact that we're a very spread out country, we're a very cold country, a lot of people drive cars, a lot of people live in rural areas. How do you transition the economy when there is that kind of reliance on right now, gas-driven vehicles and the oil and gas sector in Alberta without leaving people behind? No, I mean, that's really the fundamental question, right? Um, and there's not one single answer because you have to break it down sector by sector. The answer for houses and the answer for the oil industry are actually different answers. So for vehicles, we will move to electric-powered vehicles. You will not be able to buy a gas-powered car by 2040. China, India, most of Europe, California, and Canada have now said they're going to ban the sale. So that train's left the station. We'll be moving to fossil fuel-free transportation within two or three decades. Planes will take longer, but vehicles, that's going to happen. So you know, that change will happen whether we like it or not. Uh, as, a, as an auto manufacturing province here in Ontario, getting ahead of that curve is a great idea. One of the reasons GM shut down the Oshawa plant was they're beginning to move towards electric vehicle manufacturing. So you want to be part of that new economy, and we can be. When it comes to oil and gas, it's a little trickier because you know, we're moving to a future where we will use less and less oil and gas over time. Gas will be a little longer as a cleaner fuel, but, but you know, eventually we'll, we'll always use it for some things, petrochemicals, plastics and things, but we'll, we'll use less of it. So for Canada, um, really the solution is the same thing Norway is doing, which is um, while, the world, while there's a global demand for oil and gas, of course you know, we can be one of the people competing to meet that demand. But at the same time, we should do two things. We should make sure that the environmental 
performance of our industry is among the best in the world. That's one of the challenges for our oil sands is historically their environmental performance hasn't been that great. That's why people they use the word dirty oil. They're actually getting better, but they've got to keep doing a lot better. Uh, the second thing is we should be a leader in building an economy that needs less and less oil and gas. So Canada, like Norway, should say, okay, we're producing this. Let's use a good chunk of the wealth from this one-time resource to invest in being ready for the economy of the future, both in Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, and across the country. Let's use this to help power the economic transition to an innovative, cleaner future. Here in Ontario, I mean, we used to be a province based on mining and forestry. You know, if you look back a century ago, even, you know, many decades ago, but now it's really seen as sort of manufacturing, finance, uh, innovation. Economies transition. Texas used to be all about oil. Texas is actually one of the world leaders in clean technology, the number one producer of, of wind, wind power and wind panels in the U.S. So that kind of transition happens. So in Alberta, it's about recognizing the changes happening, continuing to, to have an oil industry, but really making sure its environmental performance is world-class, but using some of those revenues to invest in the economy of the future. One of the things I liked about the federal government did last year is they said they were going to take the revenues from the Trans Mountain Pipeline, both the sale of it and the tax revenues, and invest those in clean technology and innovation, which is exactly what Norway's done. Right? They're, they're taking this one-time asset and investing it to move towards a world that, frankly, will need less and less oil and gas over time. And we're going to have to make sure we help the communities in that transition, like we've done with other parts of Canada. If there is a cost, if there are communities and workers that are affected, let's help them retrain, let's help with investment funds that let new industries get established in those places. But the transition's happening whether we like it or not. We can't bury our head in the sands and pretend we can wave a magical wand and say the world's not going to move away from gas-powered cars. They are. That's not our choice. That's all the time we have for today. I'm afraid, Stuart, but a fascinating topic. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights and your report. We appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us for the West Block. I'm Mercedes Stevenson.